is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, former editor of Auto Express, James Batchelor, comes on to give us his frank views on the future of Jaguar. Plus, disaster has struck Tom Robinson moments before the closing round of the JEC Championship as a cylinder head gasket has to be changed on the XJR6 race car. But the question is, can he get the car ready on time? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're well. And keeping safe wherever you're listening to us from in the worldwide Jaguar community. I've had a rather brilliant week, I have to be honest. I attended the Jaguar Enthusiast Club track day at the historic Castle Coombe race circuit in Wiltshire. That took place on Tuesday the 20th of October and what a day we had. It is safe to say it's been quite a tough year so far for all of us into cars and car events. So it was a great release to get out on track with our favourite cars around Castle Coombe and we had a brilliant day. It started really, really early. There was a driver's briefing, a chance to follow one of the course cars around the circuit to get a sighting lap in, just to kind of work out how you were going to approach the circuit in the best and most safe way, of course. And then a full and packed day of track time. And you really do get a huge amount of track time on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club track days literally more than your road-going car brakes can probably deal with and everyone making the most of the opportunity to drive their cars safely but on the limit it's a really great way of getting to know your jaguar and driving it properly and just feeling how it feels when it's doing what it's supposed to do and well going fast basically a massive thanks as well to tom robinson who took me out in his xjr6 race car that very car that you hear about every week here on the podcast yes finally i got out with him in it and i've got to say <laughs> it's an experience uh, you've never seen an xjr6 saloon go like tom's car goes it is phenomenal not only from the point of view of power and acceleration but but from the point of view of sheer braking power as well literally my eyeballs moved in my skull when that car approached every bend and tom were a fantastic driver and i was really lucky to get out with him and experience that championship xjr6 out on track at his local circuit castle Coombe. the day didn't end brilliantly for tom though it has to be said because he has had some temperature issues with that car and that has resulted in him needing to change a cylinder head gasket on that car and have some work done on the cylinder head and the closing round back at Castle Coombe of the JEC race championship was literally days later. So stay with us here on this episode of the podcast to find out the latest from Tom and how he's getting on with that work. Also keep an eye out on Friday Spotlight and on the JEC YouTube channel because we made some really exciting video at Castle Coombe during the track day. We were honoured to have amongst us a fantastic young talent. His name is Ollie Warren. He's going to be a superstar in the British Superbike Championship next year. We know it. He's got an incredible amount of talent. And the main thing is, not only is he a future star of British Superbikes, but also he's a massive Jag fan. So he and I made a fantastic little video about him and his Jaguar XC. We also got him out with Tom in the XJR6 to compare and contrast how British Superbikes might 
right take on Castlecombe compared to Tom in his XJR6. And we also got to know a little bit more about Ollie and where he's come from, his motorbike racing history. And you can see all of that in a future video that we'll be sending out via Friday Spotlight, that e-newsletter that comes into your inbox every Friday evening. You can sign up to that e-newsletter if you don't already receive it, by the way, very easily at jecpodcast.com. Just click the button to ask to be notified of new episodes of this podcast and you'll be added onto the Friday Spotlight list and you'll be sent an email newsletter every Friday evening with this podcast on it plus a whole plethora of articles and news items related to the world of Jaguar. Don't forget, of course, we're still giving away our Jaguar XK, that fantastic 5-litre signature edition Jaguar XK that is raising money for the Haemophilia Society. Finished in stunning Italian racing red with just 35,000 miles on the clock, that 2014 XK Coupe could be yours for just £2. That's all the raffle tickets cost. And you can buy them online at jec.org.uk forward slash raffle to be in with a chance of winning that car. The draw will take place at Blenheim Palace as part of the Summer Jaguar Festival on the 16th of May, 2021. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. More memories from a lifetime in motorsport with Richard West now. And it almost seems like... A distant memory jumping on aeroplanes and flying around the globe but it is a major part of anyone who works in the motorsport industry and Richard for you in particular being involved with the teams that you were involved with travel was a major part of it and you've spent a considerable amount of your time in the air haven't you in your life I have I mean I've, I've, I'm a very sad person in many ways but I've kept diaries all of my working life right from when I started back in rallying in the, you know, in the late 70s and I don't know how my wife Denise came up with it but she sort of estimated reading through a whole bunch of them over a long period of time that I've probably spent about three years of my life on an aeroplane. Um, the, the one thing when you're in a commercial role in a team not only do you attend all of the races be it sports cars or Formula One or whatever series you're involved in IndyCar but on the commercial side, of course, you also go to many of the tests in, in the days when there were a lot of tests. And also you go to promotional days, filming days. And consequently, it's not uncommon, it was not uncommon for a, a person working in the commercial world to be on four or five different flights in a week. Um, you know, I've literally in my past career stepped off one flight, gone outside the airport, met my wife with a suitcase with clean gear in it, gone back in, checked in and flown off again. And... It's. I look back now and I watch the news and obviously for all of us who are going through these very difficult times and at the time you almost take it for granted but in true terms it makes you realise what a remarkable freedom we all had and how much the airline industry is important to business today and has been in the past. Mm, absolutely and of course more and more than ever now i guess race teams are having even without the complications of a pandemic and covid and all of the implications of that race teams have for some time had to be very serious about looking at their overall carbon footprint throughout a season haven't they absolutely i mean if you clearly if you go back you know two or three decades um, uh, then really nobody i think in those early days even considered that but as the facts have become clearer People have had to look at it the way races have been organised, the way back-to-back -back races in the past have been organised, have now been done to try and make the most. If you're in the Far East, you know, why would you then fly back to Central Europe to fly out to Malaysia two weeks later? 
So the whole way the sport has been working, or the various elements within the sport, this is pre-COVID, they've been working very hard to arrange their calendars so they reduce the amount of miles that are there. But of course, in the early days, everybody was flying commercial. There was uh, Bob Warren and Bob Warren Travel, which has been responsible for many years now in Formula One and uh, other forms of motorsport. Bob's team have been responsible for flying people around. And, of course, that involved chartering very large aircraft, even as large as 747s, in order to get those numbers of team people around the world. What is interesting, I've been talking to a guy recently who uh, runs an executive jet fleet down at uh, Kidlington Airport, which obviously is very close to the old TWR setup. No relationship to it now at all. But he said they've never been busier. And, of course, what's tending to happen is because of the restrictions, but also because of health reasons. He said it appears that the executive jet industry has never been busier. He said, you know, we're actually putting two more aircraft on the fleet to enable us to fly people with very serious business interests who cannot afford to stand still, but obviously want to be as safe as they possibly can be in terms of travelling. So we're seeing almost a role reversal, whilst many team owners in the past and probably still today have their own aircraft or access to their own aircraft. Uh, less and less people are flying commercially as they did. And those people who have to travel are using um, fuel efficient aircraft and doubling up. You see the pictures of some of the Grand Prix drivers sometimes coming back on Instagram and you'll see four or five of the drivers all together. And they're obviously jet sharing to and from events to try and be as healthy as they possibly can in this climate. And mm. um, yeah, health is a question, really, isn't it? Were you ever aware of the health implications on yourself traveling about that much? I mean, we're all aware of deep vein thrombosis and stuff like that now, but was that apparent then? Oh, do you know what? I think if I go back to the 80s, you know, when there were five rows of smoking in the back of economy and three in business and the back, <laughs> back row of first class was smoking, you know, or if you were on the Japan Airlines in those days, every single row was smoking. Um, no, because we were all young and, you know, fit and rushing around the world. And I don't think we thought too much about it. Clearly, um, it, it's become much more of a topic in later years of flying. And I think aircraft have become much more civilized in terms of the way that they're laid out. Um, I think, yes, long-term effects. I always used to want to sit on the right-hand side of the aircraft in a window seat. But, of course, what you end up doing is you end up with your head against, this is in the years before I flew in, in bigger and more comfortable and more expensive seats. In the old days, everything was economy. And I used to fall asleep for hours on end with my head against the window. And in fact, I have a appalling tinnitus in my right ear. And one of the guys said to me, well, it wasn't necessarily the motor racing. It was probably those thousands of hours you fell asleep with your head against the window with the rushing noise of the aircraft going past, the air passing over the fuselage that caused tinnitus in the right side more than the left side. So, yeah, it, it does leave its mark, so to speak. Wow, incredible. And and planes have changed as well, haven't they? You know, in those days we had Concorde and it was you were able to travel at supersonic speeds. It's interesting now that there is not the market for that kind of travel anymore. And that obviously shows a shift in all types of business, not just motorsport. It does. And Concorde was a firm favourite, you know, in the motorsport world when it was required. I've been very lucky. I've flown it a number of times on business and once, uh, twice uh, on pleasure. And you would, you know, it's, it's well documented both in television and radio terms of the type of people that regularly used to use it. Um, we had one particular incident where we were in Montreal for a race and uh, Anne Bradshaw and another uh, group of well-known people 
we'd finished the race weekend and we were due to fly out on the Monday evening and uh, we received a phone call from a BA staff member at three in the morning and said, look, you know, if you can get a group of 17, 18 people together and fly them down to New York first thing in the morning because we've got problems with the aircraft going back from Montreal, we'll stick you all on Concord. Well, you've never seen 18 people move so fast in your life at three o'clock in the morning. We went round banging on doors and we, we drove out to the airport, took the first flight of the morning down to New York and a whole bunch of us from four or five different teams all piled onto the rocket and flew back to Heathrow in much style and aplomb, you know. So it was a remarkable aircraft, but it was also incredibly useful, uh, a sponsorship deal I did in the 90s gentleman said i've literally i can do this deal but you have to be in new york this evening there was no other way of, there was no other way of doing it it was a 7 30 in the morning phone call it was straight to heathrow excuse me straight to heathrow 7a i think i was in and uh, there it was two hours 58 minutes later uh, i was in a taxi in or in the terminal in new york waiting for a taxi to take me downtown and uh, in fact, I flew back home on the um, uh, on one of the other aircraft that that same evening. So you could physically, in those days, fly to New York, do your business, and fly home. It was quite remarkable. Well, as I'm hearing you recount those stories of that old way of doing business, a kind of title for a book has come across my mind, and that is how Zoom killed the uh, aero industry. And and I think never things are never going to be the same again, are they? No, they're not. And I think also that, that the fun that we all had in those situations, I mean, there was a couple of instances in my career. I did have a near miss once on a 747, which wasn't very pleasant, mid-Atlantic, when all of the you know oxygen masks came down and we were told to stay in our seats for four hours. There'd been a, a movement of something in the cargo hold, but you could tell by the crew's faces that they weren't very happy. And uh, <laughs> I was on a very small Falcon 20 jet coming out of Heathrow with my McLaren teammates, Ron Dennis, Gordon Murray, Steve Nichols, Neil Oakley, and a few others. We were all crammed in with lots of um, hand baggage because we were taking spares to attach to Paul Rickard. And we taxied out of what used to be the old field aviation and were given the clearance from the tower. And at about 800 feet, I was squeezed in the jump seat between our two pilots, Bob Frith and Derek McGuffey, sadly, both of whom were long gone. And uh, we had a heron go down the right-hand engine. It literally appeared from nowhere and flew straight down the right-hand engine. And there was an enormous bang and the dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree. And uh, we were given immediate clearance to land and we were chased all the way down the runway by two fire engines. But the thing that broke the camel's back in terms of the seriousness of it was when we taxied into the hangar, there was literally like a tube with a few bits of pipe hanging out of it where a perfectly good general electric engine had been a few hours earlier. And Ron Dennis got out of the plane and walked around the back and he was looking in the back of the tube and we never found out who it was. But this mechanic's voice, voice from the back of the hangar boomed out, I shouldn't bother mate, it's probably dead already. <laughs> <laughs> and it completely defused the situation and we went back to the terminal and had a couple of drinks and a chartered aircraft took us down to Paul Ricard only two or three hours late. So yeah, it's been an interesting life and to many ways I do miss my flying. Now to a far more grounded form of motorsport, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship continues with Tom Robinson's Motorsport Diary next. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. So we're recording the podcast a little bit later than normal. It's actually about four o'clock on Friday. 
Um, as I mentioned last week, um, we're racing at Castle Coombe tomorrow um, for the JEC Championship and uh, we had an absolute cracking track day on Tuesday and uh, we took my car out for some passenger laps. I took um, Ollie out, which you'll, you'll read all about, and, and Wayne from the podcast himself come out with the car with me and um, unfortunately we were suffering with a little bit of um, engine temperatures. They were just a little bit sporadic. They weren't as stable as they had been. I don't know if you can remember really early on in the podcast we mentioned that we're having slight issues uh, temperature issues with the car and that we'd spent some time testing at Pembry and we thought we'd resolve these. Now we had absolutely no issues as you know at Donington we had a great result and engine temps looking over the logs were absolutely perfect we didn't really see much above 95 which is pretty much perfect for what we're trying to achieve. Now at Castle Coombe on Tuesday um, it seemed to be fluctuating to sort of 105, 110 which is, is just really unusual for this car so um, we were starting to get a little bit worried but we, we managed to sort of do a couple of laps here and there and trying to see if we can find any pattern which we just couldn't now obviously Wednesday we got the car back and the first job really was to get it in the workshop and see what was going on and the, the sort of first test we decided to do really was to test to see if it, we had a potential of the head gasket failure now we use a, a block test which is um, or a sniff test as some people call it which is basically a, a testing piece of apparatus that you can connect to the expansion bottle and pump and see if there is any exhaust gases in the actual coolant which would potentially explain either that the, there's a crack in the cylinder head or the head gasket itself has failed or block worst comes to worst now Unfortunately, um, this actually failed and we did the test multiple times, which would point towards that we had a failure somewhere of potentially the head gasket. So um, we had to obviously make quite a quick decision with the fact that we we're racing on Saturday um, and we had to pull the cylinder head off and, and check the gasket. Now, there wasn't anything that was absolutely glaringly obvious on the head gasket, which was really frustrating. There was one small place that we think that potentially it was, uh, wasn't sealing, but it wasn't uh, an absolute high percent set in stone which is really frustrating so we did actually have to strip the cylinder head right back down take all the valves out and send it away um, to be crack tested um, the good news was that this did pass the crack testing but the downside to this is that we've literally only just got the head back today so we are currently frantically building the engine back together in the hope that we can get this all resolved by today and, and run up and tested ready to be to go racing up at Castle Coombe tomorrow now we are qualifying at nine in the morning so we've got a got a fair bit of work to do so I think it's going to be the late shift tonight so um, once we've got it obviously got the cylinder head back on it and stuff we can run it up and make sure we've obviously rectified the issue so fingers crossed um, but we're absolutely full steam ahead now um, I mean rest of the preparation on the car luckily because we had the track day on Tuesday we've been able to get ahead of the game and, and get all of the geometry um, get the new tyres bedded in on the track day and we managed to get all the dampers set on the track day so we have ruled out some of our early on prep that we would normally do um, because obviously we had Tuesday so we were preparing the car earlier so I'm fairly confident with the rest of the setup of the car we just need to make sure that we get over this head gasket sealing issue which is which is really frustrating but it is one of those we're pushing the limitations of these engines and we're doing things that they weren't really designed to do so as long as we can get this resolved then um, fingers crossed we're, we're going to be all good for qualifying tomorrow morning 
obviously as I said Castle Coombe is my local circuit so I have really been looking forward to this um, looking at the weather it's quite interchangeable I think it's going to be wet but we may get away with qualifying being dry so I am going to keep the car and the dry setup at the moment if it looks interchangeable for the day I can make the decision then but it's going to be a great great race it's going to be busy as well so we've got to really make sure I can put the car in a decent position for qualifying because as some of you pr probably know if you've driven Castle Coombe it is quite tight and there isn't many lines to to pass people there so we really do need to get a good qualifying lap but fingers crossed we can get it all resolved next week i'll give you an update and let you know how we got on and and whether we got the car back together but fingers crossed you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk well, now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'm talking to James Batchelor, who is former editor of Auto Express magazine and uh, uh, basically a motoring journalist about town and uh, an expert in all things British market, really. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hello, Wayne. Lovely to be on. Yes, yeah, good to uh, chat to you again. And uh, you and I catch up now and then about the state of the car industry and uh, what motor manufacturers are doing to survive. Um, and... Well, JLR, an interesting story, really. And, of course, we talk at a time which is probably a bit of a watershed for Jaguar Land Rover at the moment. Of course, the legend, really, that has become Ralph Speth is taking a sidestep and new to the CEO role is a man with, uh, well, quite a lot of experience in the French motor industry. Of course, Thierry Bellori, who comes from a Renault background and others. So... Firstly, what do we think? Uh, is this the right man for the job? Ask me that question five years' time, Wayne. But <laughs> I, I think I think he probably is. I mean, you know, Ralph Speth, he lorded over the uh, the empires of JLR for the past ten or so years, a little bit more than ten years, and he has. There's no doubt about it. He had driven huge growth in the brand, revitalised the brand, and, and Thierry Bellore takes over a brand that. Um, is it in rude health? I'm not quite so sure. Um, and I think Thierry Bellore has got a has got a tough job on his hands. Really, um, it's, it's unsurprising. There's rumours over the past week or so that um, that he's he's coming in and he's eyeing up which models that he's going to axe. He wants to to shake up the product range. And um, I think we've got to take that with a little bit of pinch of salt, really, because, you know, any new CEO that comes into the role wants to um, forget the past of the previous CEO and very much put their own stamp on on the company. Um, so I think we have to take um, these these plans with a bit of pinch of salt. But there is no doubt about it. The future of JLR at the moment is a little bit precarious. And uh, I think the new CEO is going to have to um, make some bold plans to actually um, put JLI in a good position for, for the 2030s and the 2040s and the future, really. Well, to try and see what their future might be like, let's have a little bit of a reminisce, perhaps, over the past. And obviously, when you were on Auto Express, you were covering new vehicles coming out of Jaguar Land Rover on a regular basis. 
looking back on some of the cars probably from the past sort of five or six years and some of the stories out of JLR, what stands out to you as some turning points for the company in recent times? There are two big turning points for JLR over the past five years. I mean, first of all, is the F-Pace. I mean, you know, Jaguar has been contemplating going to the SUV segment for as, for as long as you and I can remember. Um, yeah, uh, for decades, they've been trying to get into the SUV segment. And they finally did it in, uh, in 2016 with the, with the F-Pace. You know, I still think it's an incredibly good-looking car. You know, pens by, by Ian Callum, of course, the genius that is Ian Callum. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time with, with him, interviewing him at various points, at various motor shows. And I did believe that what he was telling me, which was it was very difficult to design a, a Jaguar SUV. I mean, I, I think a lot of manufacturers like Jaguar a lot of sporting manufacturers looked at what Porsche did with the Cayenne um, and uh, noted that, yes, the Cayenne has been an enormous success for Porsche. And, you know, as, uh, as we all well know that Porsche sells more SUVs these days than sports cars. But when the Cayenne was first revealed in 2002, it got panned immediately because of the way it looked. And I think a lot of manufacturers have been living Sporting manufacturers with a lot of heritage, like Jaguar, um, uh, you know, looked at that and thought, we've got to get this right. And I think they did get it right with the F-Pace. Um, whether it's been the enormous success that they want it to be is, is, another, is another question entirely. But that's one turning point. The second turning point, is, of course, has been the I-Pace. Jaguar stole a march on, on Audi, Mercedes, um, uh, by launching their first full electric SUV. Um, whether they're going to be able to continue this momentum with this car um, remains to be seen. Um, but that very much was a turning point. It was very good for, for the Jaguar brand, you know, being, being the first, to, first premium manufacturer really to launch an all-electric SUV. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a car that hasn't got that many compromises either. You know, it, it's a good-looking car. It drives fantastically well, and it's incredibly well-made as well. So, yeah, that, that very much is, is another turning point. So I think over the past five years, it's the F-Pace and the I-Pace, and true Jag diehard fans will note that they are both SUVs. They're not sports cars. They're not sports saloons. They are SUVs, unfortunately. An amazing turnaround for Jaguar, really, because it wasn't so long ago that they were being heavily criticised for the fact that vehicles like the XF Sport Brake, their sort of premium estate car, were only available in diesel at a point where diesel engines became, well, they fell right out of favour, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, double whammy for Jaguar in the sense that they, they'd invested millions upon millions on this, on this new engine facility at Wolverhampton, um, which was, you know, designed primarily to churn out two-litre diesel engines. And uh, they had to quickly sort of uh, change their plans, really. Um, and, and, and they're doing that. I mean, the, the, the Wolverhampton factory now is, is designing a, and, and building a new range of Ingenium engines, you know, straight-six engines, you know, back to the days of straight-six engines, for Jaguars. And they've really had to to change their plans really 10 or so years ago that the future for jaguar land rover was very bright you know they'd launched the the uh, the first xs and that really ripped up the the rule book and and marked a a, a changing point in terms of jaguar's design and jaguar's image you know m you know less of the fusty image and more of a modern image 
and of course the new XJ as well at the time. You know, now um, you know the future is is looking very precarious for the brand. And uh, as a Jaguar diehard fan as I am, it, it it fills me with a little bit of well concern really. You know, 2014, 2015, there was a lot of hope as well with the launch of the XE, the the new Wolverhampton factory. You know. F-Pace, XS, there was a lot of hope, but, but by the end of the decade and as, you know, at the start of the 2020s now, um, I don't think the future looks quite so rosy. And, and like, you know, like we've been saying, Thierry Bellore has got a tough job on his hands to actually not turn this brand around, but give it a bit of reinvigoration and to make it a company that's suitable for, for the current automotive climate. There was a massive change when, especially when the XF arrived, because it's easy to forget now that before that car, that was the successor to the S-Type, which had been heavily criticised from launch for being too reliant on nostalgia to sell it. But along comes the XF with a a gear knob that rises out of the centre console and LEDs and and vents that uh, turn and rotate and everyone gets excited. Everyone loves the vents. Everyone loves the vents, yeah. And and of course that sort of, as you say, propelled them through the next few years. You're right. It's difficult to remember the shock it caused within the industry and within Jaguar enthusiasts. You know, this was a car that completely and utterly trampled on everything the S-Type represented. And within, within a very short space of time, it was, it was doubling the sales of the old S-Type. I mean, I think it peaked at just over 20,000 units in about 2010, I think. Um, and this was a big car for Jaguar, and it really did set the seeds of change that uh, this was a brand more of a modern british brand that that didn't look at the past it was very much looking more at the future and we are living in times now where you know a bmw 3 series is a fantastic car it drives very well it's got all the latest tech and the build quality is great and they're cheap on pcp you know there are three series everywhere these days and and for, for people to actually put their faith into buying a Jaguar, which, um, which, may, be, which may cost more than a BMW on a, on a PCP, it's, it's slightly too much to ask of people. I mean, Alfa Romeo have got the same problem. You know, they've, the, the product is, is eight-tenths of the way there, and yet it can't quite... It can't quite do it. It's a crying shame. I mean, there is a possibility, of course, that actually, unwittingly, they have already cracked it in that SUVs are what young families want to buy now, and they've got a fantastic one in the I-Pace and the F-Pace there. They have, yeah, and and, and let's not forget the E-Pace as well, which, yeah. which, has, been, um, which has been a strong seller. But um, they, they've come out a little bit late. Um, there's not quite enough of them, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, you look at BMW and Mercedes and... Yes, we like to criticise the German brands for having an, uh, for filling every single niche possible, but um, you need to fill niches. You need to build SUVs to actually make money. And Jaguar have only got three of them, and the I-Pace is very expensive to make. They haven't got enough SUVs, unfortunately. Uh, very sad at the at the concept that Jaguar has got to become an SUV brand. And yes, it ha- it can have the XJ and it can have the F-Type, but. Um, 
the days of building sports saloons, unfortunately, I think uh, are, are coming to an end for the Jaguar. Interestingly, though, the probably the jewel in the crown at the moment for Jaguar, uh, before perhaps that all-electric XJ arrives in the new year that we're all excited to see, is, of course, the good old F-Type. And there it sits, still on the bedroom walls of children up and down the land, and uh, just recently had a facelift, of course, at the tail end of 2019. It still looks good. It's still up there with the E-Type, and it's still propelling the Jaguar brand into that niche where people want to aspire to own one one day isn't it no it does and uh, the f-type is uh, you know taking my impartial hat off for the moment it's one of my it's one of my favorites and uh, a lot of my uh, automotive colleagues uh, they they do like to make fun of, of the fact that i uh, i'm a big f-type fan and i'd actually choose an f-type over an, uh, over an equivalent porsche 911 um even though the 911 is the better car but uh, there is something about the f-type the way it looks the way it sounds and the way that yes, it harks back to the E-type, and it, and 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 for many of us, the, the F-type is what a Jaguar is all about, isn't it? And um, uh, has it been a huge success for Jaguar? Not really, and um, it hasn't been a huge success worldwide either for them. But um, much like uh, you and I have spoken about in the past with with MG. Uh, brand, you know, British sporting brands, they do sort of need to have this kind of halo sports car, which, um, uh, you know, it, it, it does cost a lot of money to make, cost, cost a lot of money to invest in, but um, it gives the brand something which um, which allows Jaguar's SUVs and, and saloons to, to have to have a place in the world, really. It's much like Land Rover. I mean, you know, Land Rover, since Land Rover got rid of the original Defender, what was it, four or five years ago, to me, Land Rover has felt a very strange brand because it's had these wonderful, fashionable SUVs, but it, the, the, the authentic product wasn't there. The authentic product, which the Land Rover brand hangs off of, wasn't there. And it's the same with Jaguar. I mean, it would be a sad day if, they, if Jaguar decides to stop building sports cars because I think the, the relevance of the brand hinges upon having a, at least one sports car in, in the lineup. Absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it, how Jaguar and Land Rover interact in the market. And woe betide me to mention the two words British Leyland here, but um, there are parallels, aren't there? Because here you have one side of the same company selling a premium SUV, whilst at the same time, the other side of the same company also trying to push a premium SUV. And this kind of Range Rover Evoque versus F-Pace battle, it can't do the company any good, surely. Well, if you look at the sales figures, I mean, you you could say that it's not doing the company much good. I mean, Jaguar have been adamant, you know, when they when they launched the F-Pace, that the F-Pace was not going to tread on the toes of any Land Rover products. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to say that a Jaguar F-Pace customer is very different from a Land Rover Discovery Sport customer. But um, I think that's 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 not true, really. Uh, we, we all like to think that Jaguar owners are very different from Land Rover owners. And the hardline enthusiasts very much are, but they're very different types of people. But in the mass market, in the you know families who are looking for for an SUV, they are those those kinds of considerations don't come into it. And yes, I think it's perfectly likely. It's very it's very probable that um, that JLR has cannibalised sales 
um, with with products that do um, unintentionally compete against each other. And um, I mean, you know, Land Rover is a, is a is a case in point. I mean, we could we could I could talk for hours about Land Rover in the sense that they've got too many products competing against each other. You know, there are if you look at the forty to fifty thousand pound bracket in their range, they've got about five or six different cars that all overlap. And you mentioned monthly payments and PCP. This is one of the biggest changes in the whole entire motor industry over the last five to ten years, isn't it? Quite simply, people, generally speaking, don't buy cars anymore. They're all on PCP or these other finance schemes. And in a way, that really changes the way a manufacturer needs to bring a car to market, doesn't it? Oh, totally. I mean... um I, I, you know, the, the, the production cycle of cars has, has been cut accordingly to to suit this kind of three-year PCP market because manufacturers know that they've got to produce a car within a three, you know, two to three, even four-year period that um, is exciting and looks different enough um, for people to, to 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 hop out of one PCP deal into another PCP deal. Um, you know, the days of of, of, of British Leyland producing one product for, for, you know, 30, 40 years are gone. Manufacturers can't do things like that anymore. Not only is the pace of technology, um, you know, uh, absolutely huge these days, you know, something you can launch something one minute and it becomes instantly out of date within within five minutes. Um, but manufacturers are having to pander to a different kind of market now where people are, are more fickle and people don't buy a car with 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 hard cash anymore and say yeah um well i'm talking about the vast majority of people here people there are a few people who still do this but the vast majority of people don't go into a jaguar showroom and say yep i'm going to buy jaguar xs and i'm going to keep that for 10 years they don't um people look at they are comparing manufacturers against manufacturers and it's simply and it and it and like it or, or loathe it, it, it simply comes down to uh, pounds and pence every single month now. Brand heritage only goes so far, really. There's only so often that you can keep comparing your brand to the glory days of C-types, D-types and E-types, really. Of Jaguar Land Rover is to be cutting edge takes a huge amount of money. And, um, you know, there have been reports that Tatara uh, uh perhaps getting a little bit uh well increasingly sort of uh fed up with the fact that jaguar land rover aren't quite um selling uh enough cars you know um particularly with jaguar jaguar is very much a brand that um has some some relevance in the uk but outside of the uk in brand you know it, for the rest of europe and and in countries like china um jaguar brand doesn't really mean much to people um so uh yeah how but but to, you know to be cutting edge you've got to invest the billions the billions of dollars and i'm not quite sure whether tatar are have, have quite got the capital to do that or have got the interest in doing that so that's going to be the next interesting thing with jlr is tatar going to invest invest the money or are they going to sell sell the brands and who will buy those brands we we we, we don't know but i think JLR's long-term future really is with a big uh, car company, something like PSA, FCA. I mean, you know, the, 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 the PSA, FCA, Lovin, the, the, the partnership that they've forged 
is something that JLR needs to, 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 to look at, really. We're all Jaguar fans and we love Jaguar and we love the brand and, and we want to see these cars survive. But also there's a more serious thing here. We can get wrapped up as motoring journalists in talking about the cars, the products, the brands. But let's not forget here that if you drive through Coventry now and you're on the ring road, all of that development work that's there that stretches all the way down to Gaydon and of course so down to Castle Bromwich and Solihull and even in Liverpool as well, there's been huge infrastructure investment uh, because those factories have expanded and crucially they've given employment to thousands of people in the Midlands stretching as far north as Nuneaton right the way to the Shropshire borders and down to uh, Solihull and Castle Bromwich it's easy to forget there's people behind these brands and a huge number of them at that no there is there is and you know and and, and not only is it the 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 the, the frontline manufacturing but of course it's the whole supply network as well and and um uh, you know there are there are hundreds and hundreds of british um suppliers who are all uh, manufacturing um key components um for for jaguar land rovers and there is you know, you you could you know some people would say that jaguar land rover cannot fail because there are too many people um dependent on it um and I and I I would like to agree with that. But when you look at the sales figures, and you're looking at at uh, uh, you know the, the man on the street who is eyeing up a Jaguar over a BMW, and it comes down to pounds and pence every single month on their PCP, they're not thinking. They should be, but they're not thinking about the the vast manufacturing infrastructure that is that is um you know underpinning the british economy they're not thinking like that they are purely thinking about what looks good on their driveway and how cheaply they can get it and um and and it's it's a very damning thing to say but that is that is the reality unfortunately and uh, and i and i hope that um, jaguar land rover continues and has a a colorful rebirth um in in the years to come and uh and 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 pulls pulls the the millions of pounds into the british economy and keeps people in jobs because you know uh, it's it's uh, it's a tr it's a proper british car manufacturer and uh, i don't want to see it go and i don't want to see people lose their jobs but like i keep saying you know there are some tough questions ahead for this brand and um and unfortunately, it may come at the cost of, of manufacturing jobs. And I, I really hope that doesn't happen. Well, let's cross everything that uh, Thierry can pull out the goods and turn Jaguar around and make sure it has a bright future. Certainly, we'd all like to uh, see that. And certainly, we'll be all here supporting that bright future as well. But uh, James, as ever, it's great to talk to you on the podcast and uh, great to hear your uh, uh, often frank views. I like your honesty, James. You bring us back down to earth around here and we get all misty-eyed about our cars that we love. But, uh, of course, no one is immune to the difficulties that the world has presented us with over the last 12 months are they no they're absolutely not no and uh, and i mean this year has been a, a roller coaster year for for the new car market and um yeah uh at, at the moment the you know the, the the picture september has been a stellar september for new car sales don't believe the the doom and gloom that um uh organizations like the smt are, are saying september's been a fantastic month for um the new car industry um 
whether it's going to continue or not, we, we really don't know. And I think the, the answer to that is going to be no. Um, but, but hopefully Jaguar can uh, fight through it and, uh, and, and uh, you know, tackle the, the 2020s and the 2030s with renewed vigour because, you know, you and I and, and all the listeners are, um, are, are praying for that. So, so let's, let's wait and see and have our fingers crossed. Absolutely. James Batcher, thanks for joining us. Fantastic. You're more than welcome. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.